Hey, everybody. This is Kai. Last week, I had the pleasure of hosting a launch party for a new podcast. It's called Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. Now, you've heard Terrence on our show a few times in the past. He's a host on our partner radio station, WQXR, which is dedicated to classical music. And Terrence has spent decades, frankly, interrogating the classical world, raising questions about its Eurocentric ideas, about representations of people of color in the work, and introducing his listeners to new voices. His new podcast does all of those things and more through interviews, through historical investigation, and through some personal storytelling. Terrence unearths the hidden voices that have been shaping our musical traditions all along. We kicked off the podcast with a live event at the Green Space last week here in New York City, and I want to share some of the night with you. We talk about history, we meet a composer writing operas about Black stories in Atlanta today, and we hear some pretty beautiful music. So check it out. We are excited to be here tonight to celebrate the new podcast, Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. That was the theme music that you were listening to that we were coming out to. There's gonna, we're going to hear a lot of great music tonight and a lot of great music in this podcast, but some of it quite complicated. Um, and one of the first things that is clear, Terrence, when, um, I mean, from the very beginning of episode one, is how personal this podcast is going to be <laughs> um, uh, and how much you can just hear how much at stake you have in the conversation. And I wonder if we can start there and talk about that. Like, what does this mean to you to be telling this story? I start, the, the first episode of the show started with a, per, a very personal story, um, talking about my father. I don't know if you all heard this, um, but my pops used to uh, come home every evening. And if I wasn't practicing piano or playing my trumpet, then I was fair game for whatever he wanted me to do. <laughs> so if I heard his car coming in the driveway, I would like run to my piano um, just to save myself from doing some chores. I want you all to hear this. I think we got a clip of, of the story that I told in the first episode. When I was a kid, sometimes when my father would come home from work, he and I would walk down to the corner grocery store, not to buy groceries now, but to pick up any litter that was in the parking lot. Man, I hated doing that. What if my friends saw me picking up trash on the corner? Can you imagine the jokes? So dad would pick up this trash with this long broomstick, had a nail on the end of it. He put it into this garbage bag that I was holding. And at some point I asked my mother, is this dad's part-time job? She said he was just trying to beautify the neighborhood, just trying to clean up a bit, wanted the place where we lived to be beautiful. And I think my father was onto something. That's something that any of us can do, whether it's in our personal or professional lives. My artistic neighborhood was classical music. I walk the streets of classical music every day. And we all know that classical music in America isn't the most inclusive of art forms. So in this podcast, we're going to try and create something more inclusive, 
something more beautiful for all of us. Terrence we'll explained that in his artistic neighborhood of classical music, opera in particular has needed some freshening up. Because I remember a professor saying to me at Morehouse, he said, you know, I, you know, I do most of my singing in Europe because in America, nobody wants, you know, black man hugging a white woman on the stage, especially down here down south. I went to Morehouse, so he was saying that about Georgia. And so, you know, that just stuck with me. And when we started thinking about this podcast or me doing more documentaries, it was based on a letter that I got from a listener who said, go back to where you came from and take William Grant still with you. And I was like, Cleveland? What is he talking about? <laughs> What's Cleveland got to do with it? <laughs> it's like Mississippi? How do you know my parents were from Mississippi? And Grant still was from Mississippi. And he said, you know, your culture is inferior to mine. And so, um, you know, our staff at QXR wasn't happy about it, man. And so we thought, you know, we have to do something about this. We don't want to be a haven for people with ideas, supremacist ideas. We don't want to be a safe space for that. We want to create a, a station that embraces all of New York's culture, all of the classical, you know, styles that are part of our city and the people that are part of the city. And so we started to diversify our playlist a little bit more and try to, you know, make that kind of person uncomfortable. And so the podcast and all of my documentaries are an extension of that, you know, making um, stories and telling stories. You know, we told the story of Florence Price back, you know, 13 years ago. We told the story of Hazel Scott, you know, who was so important in Harlem and, you know, music in the life of Dr. King. It's just so many stories um, that really, hopefully, bring our people, you know, together. And the first season is looking at blackness in opera. Um, yes. And as you said, that's where you're so, so, so starting with opera, right. um, why there? Why is that the place to start? Opera is a very expensive art form. And I thought, if we go back to opera, um, you're talking early 1600s, and it sort of mirrors the Atlantic slave trade. And so you start thinking about the folks who invested in the trade had to be entertained by something. Mm. So their entertainment had to match their politics, one would think. So I wanted to investigate that and, and look at how they were, you know, crystallizing these ideas about blackness in their entertainment. And that's why we started with opera. And in this, in this um, series, we're starting with Mozart. And we're going to go and look at uh, Shakespeare's Otello as composed by Verdi later. But Shakespeare wrote it in 1590s or so. And so we're looking at these stories that uh, have these black characters. You know, there's a, I can talk a little bit about Monastatos if you'd like. Well, well, yeah, well, we're about to get there. I mean, okay. get, 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 hold one moment, we're gonna get to Monastatos. <laughs> we're gonna get there, uh, crowd favorite. We, we do, because we're gonna hear some music. We, we have a soprano with us today who's gonna sing an aria from the Magic Flute, Mozart's right. Magic Flute. First four uh, episodes of the season deal with the Magic Flute. Um, 
And uh, this character is Pamina. Yes. Um, and so let's start there. For those of us who are not familiar with this story, who is Pamina and what does she represent? Pamina, she is the daughter of Queen of the Night. She is um, being held captive by a man named Sarastro, who in many productions around the world has been played by this bass right here, Kevin Maynard. He's <laughs> played Sarastro. Yes. So, Sarastro is keeping Pamina because he thinks that her mother is a bad influence. He's trying to protect her from her mother. Now, the man that he has watching over her is a fellow named Monostatos, who is the black character in the opera. Well, Pamina is described as a beautiful princess, and Monostatos says she's, you know, she's white, and white is beautiful. And Pamina doesn't even look at Monostatos, you know. She falls for a prince, a guy named Tamino, and when she thinks that, you know, love is impossible for her, she sings this beautiful aria. And regardless of what she, how she looks, when you hear this aria, I think you understand why Monostatos may have had some affection <laughs> for her. Okay. Well, we are going to hear it. Soprano Asha Lindsay is a native of Washington Heights. She's a graduate of New England Conservatory in Boston and received her master's in opera studies in Vienna, Austria at the University for Music and Performing Arts. Her career took off in Europe and now she's back in New York City and to continue her musical journey. And joining her at the piano is gonna be Kyle Walker, who is a member of the piano faculty at NYU Steinhardt and the Kaufman Center. He is a frequent collaborator with composers including Vijay Iyer, Jeffrey Scott, and Tanya Leon. Please welcome them to the stage. Thank you. 
After we heard Asha Lindsay's moving performance, Terrence explained that he wanted us all to contrast the way Mozart treated this character, a white person, and her deep emotional longing with how he treated a Black character who had the same exact emotions. In his aria, this Black character, he sings about his own Blackness and how it makes him ugly and unworthy of Pamita. Well, let us finally hear from Monastistos. Um, our next singer is tenor Ian George. He is a multi-genre vocalist and a Harlem native with roots in, in Haiti and Guyana. He's a graduate of Morehouse College, hey, uh, where he studied voice. Ian is also a researcher on the Every Voice podcast. And joining him again at the piano is Kyle Walker. Please welcome them to the stage. This aria, the important piece about this aria is when Ostatos is singing this lyric that I've been talking about, and he's not to have a beautiful voice. He's supposed to be, you know, just a little ragged around the edges. After a break, we'll meet a composer who is writing new operas that give all characters their full humanity. Stay with us. And we're going to shift gears a little and learn about some contemporary opera being composed in Atlanta. Dr. Sharon Willis is the founder of AmeriCorps Opera Alliance. She has written 16 operas and a number of plays that center on black American characters. Their stories range from the only black passenger on the Titanic to an opera on the life of Madam C.J. Walker from my hometown, Indianapolis, uh, the first woman to be a self-made millionaire, uh, to biblical stories about the seduction of King Solomon. Dr. Willis is based in Atlanta, but she is thankfully joining us 
in New York tonight to talk about her work. Please welcome Sharon Willis. Uh, Dr. Willis, what, what I loved about meeting you in, er, in Every Voice um, yes. uh, is that uh, I immediately thought, oh, wonderful, I'm going to hear from somebody who is writing something new, who wow. is writing a different story for black people in this space. And um, so what, tell me about the origin of that. Um, when, when did you decide uh, to focus on black characters in your operas? For me, it was a culmination of everything that I had been. When I was a child, my first talent was a storyteller. I was this remarkable storyteller. I had such a great imagination that I imagined that I could play the piano and I could not. <laughs> and um, there was a talent show when I was about 13. I looked like I was about 11. And the talent show, uh, you, you have these day programs. And at the end of the two weeks during the summer, we still have camps like that. The lady that was in charge said, is there anybody that can dance? And people raised their hand, is anybody can sing? And then, it's, then he asked, is there anyone that can play the piano? Don't know what possessed me, but I raised my hand. I just thought that God was going to strike you. And my aunt was sitting out there in the audience. And when they said, now we will have a piano selection from Sharon Willis, I went proudly to that old upright. Uh, that, that was flushed to the wall, and the audience was just as they are here. And I went out, and I used to watch the Ed Sullivan show, and of course, Lawrence Welk, because that's what my aunt watched. I went over to the piano, and I looked up, and I said, God, you're ready? I'm ready. <laughs> and, <laughs> and after I sat there about 15 seconds, nothing happened, and I knew, okay, the gig is up, so I started hitting any note. And when I finished, I timidly got up and took my little bow, and people were <laughs> elbowing. But I was a child, so it was, it, it was forgivable, <laughs> except for the aunt that was sitting out there, and I embarrassed her, and she did some Sunday school words that I can't say here. But she said, what in the blankety-blank possessed you was her word. She didn't get up there and act like a fool that you could play. But from that, her friend, my godfather, said, don't punish her. Let me find her. If she's that foolish, let me find a piano teacher. <laughs> right? If you are that bold, this is somebody who's got a talent. I found, I, he found me a piano teacher, and in a year I learned to play. Yes. Uh, and I became the Sunday school teacher, I mean, the pianist for that year after I came about 15. But to answer your question more directly, I know I then went all the way around America to say this. To most people when they celebrate 50, because that is a remarkable milestone to say that I've got to be 50 years old because when you're in your teens, you think 50 is just over the hill and you don't realize that it isn't. It's if, if we're living to be 100, some of us, that's just halfway through. I did not want to have a birthday bash. I wanted something that was gonna represent legacy for me because I grew up in Atlanta in the black experience in that Mecca, even though I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I left there when I was about 10 and all of my other relatives were in the South. I wanted something that was going to be special, a culminating activity that would represent, what have I done with 50 years of living? And it said, why don't you write an opera? I had no idea, just like I didn't have any idea that I could play that <laughs> I love it. I set about writing about what you know. And to that extent, I had to think about 
I had this classical voice coming up. And I remember being in my church and the young people sang in the gospel choir. And I wanted to sing in what they call the old fogey anthem choir because that was my voice type. And I had been trained under uh, Mr. William Revere, who was this great choral master. We did everything a cappella. We, we, we had to sight read every day of our lives, five days a week. And uh, so he made us great musicians. So I wanted to sing with them. So I had to sing in both choirs. I sang gospel, but I couldn't sing gospel. I'd sing an octave above everyone else. But then in the anthem choir, I reigned supreme. So I thought, why don't I write about how difficult it is to be an opera singer, not only in the world of opera in the European style with whites, but even with my people who could not accept that. And so it was a double whammy. But I said, I'm going to write a story. And the first opera was called The Opera Singer, where I then would present uh, the just vignettes of, of characters like Roland Hayes, who had a difficult time, traveled the world seven times, never joined an opera company because he was not be accepted. And I ended with this story called Cicioretta, who was a vaudeville singer, trained, but they wouldn't even let her have her own name. They called her the Black Patty after Adelina Patty, an Italian-American. She couldn't even have her own name because that just was not normal. We're not, if she's going to sing, it has to be in the shadow of someone else. And that was my first opera. I had no intention of writing another until the, a, a singer came up to me and said, when's the next? <laughs> so what are you talking about? I'm done, 50's over. <laughs> but it led me to put a mission out there. What I realized is not only did I have an opportunity to preserve and uh, advocate and cultivate African-American history and culture, and we don't live in a vacuum. So it's not that I can write that story without everybody else. I came up with this name called AmeriColor, uh, which was supposed to be across the spectrum. And it gave opportunities to everyone, whether you were of color or not, because my stories are all encompassing. And I got that name, AmeriColor, because I was, oh, what, when I was maybe 20 years old, I didn't care for pageants, but they were offering $750. And believe it or not, that was going to pay for my tuition that year. And I entered this pageant, and it was called Miss Aquarius. You will certainly do something. You will take a notion and do something. I, I will do that. <laughs> I was Miss Aquarius. I sang My Man's Gone Now. I'm a lyric soprano, but I got away with it. <laughs> I sang My Man's Gone Now and, uh, you know, walk the, you know, with the little swimsuit and all of that. And then they said I was Miss Aquarius. <laughs> wow. And at the same time, they were having a uh, contest in New York. And the people that were producing it here did not have time to have a pageant in Atlanta. And they said, well, can you send your Miss Aquarius here and represent Georgia? This will be called the Miss AmeriColor pageant. And I remember that, and I kept that name, and that's why I'm AmeriColor opera. Amazing. Well, I could, yes, that's right. 
I could sit and listen to you tell stories all night, but let's hear some of let's hear some of the, some of your opera. Uh, we're going to hear um, this is what on the wings of a dove from the Herndon Opera. The Herndon Opera. Tell us about this scene bef before we hear it. The Herndon Opera, of course, Alonzo Franklin Herndon married Adrian McNeil, and uh, this is we're talking about 1892, and of course, Ad uh, Alonzo himself had been a slave, but his master with his father. Um, through life, he had a hard time, even though he was fair enough to pass for white, he refused to do that. He honored his black ancestry because his mother was a slave and his mother's sister was also under, uh, bore children for that same man. He eventually walks after slavery 20 miles to Jonesboro Road, learns the barbering trade, learns to become a millionaire cutting white people's hair downtown at 66 Peachtree Street. That building still stands today. And then he marries this elegant woman who taught at Atlanta University along with Du Bois. And she's an aspiring thespian, but no one will have a black woman of, or anyone of color. I don't care how fair she looked. So she passes herself off as Creole or some, some French name and Dumignon. And she goes to Washington, D.C., and she performs all these Shakespearean characters. But then she is sadly diagnosed with Addison's disease, and no one knows how to treat it. Kennedy had that. President Kennedy had that. And she dies from that. But she gets this news as she is teaching her students. And the doctor comes by. This is in the opera. This is my libretto. The doctor comes by and says, you're not going to live much longer. Her grandmother had died a year before. So now the stage is set, she's in costume, and rather than face death in fear, she faces it with faith. But then at the same time, she, you might be say that she's a little angry. I'm a little upset with you, God, fates. I've just turned 42 years old. I have a 12-year-old 12 12-year-old uh, son to raise. I'm at the, that, just at the beginning of my career, and you're telling me that I have less than six months to live? I'm building this beautiful mansion to live in. And it becomes her death chamber. Mm. And so she faces death on the wings of a dove. I shall ascend my spirit. And that's what you hear. Well, let's bring back, excuse me, let's bring back soprano Asha Lindsay and pianist Kyle Walker. Yes. This is On the Wings of a Dove from the Herndon Opera.
Wings of a Dove from the Herndon Opera, composed by Sharon Willis. If you want to watch this entire night with all of our conversations, you can go to the greenspace.org. That's G-R-E-E-N-E, the greenspace.org. Lots of other cool events are there to watch as well, so check it out. And do check out Every Voice with Terrence McKnight, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you on Sunday. Thank you.